Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. In this teaching, Jetsama Akon Lamo opens the doors to the sphere of truth, sharing with us the qualities of activity expressed by the Dakini. Today I would like to talk briefly about a subject that His Holiness has brought up. Uh, he's brought it up a number of times, and he's brought it up while he's here on this visit too. So I think it's a good idea for us to elaborate on that and to learn a little bit more about what he means, and I hope that I can, I'll be his, let's say he's the pitcher, I'll be the batter or something like that, I don't know, there's an analogy there somewhere, I'm sure. When His Holiness talks about impartiality, he talks about the need for us to understand the faults and the flaws of cyclic existence. He talks about us getting beyond the very human way of thinking, which is to examine a certain scenario and to see that there may be unfortunates in that scenario, or there may be people who are suffering or conditions that are in, improper in that scenario. What His Holiness wants to remind us about is that as bodhisattvas, those who have taken on the commitment of traveling the bodhisattva path, we have several goals that we must accomplish. And of course the main goal is to end the suffering of all sentient beings. That we will never be able to do if our view, if our vision is so small that we can only relate to what we can see around us. Perhaps we identify with a certain culture. Well, we're Americans for the most part. Some of us aren't, and we have different cultures. But each one of us does have a culture that we relate to. And having a culture that we relate to, sometimes our minds are contained. And we think, oh, we understand the situation in this culture. We understand what's needed here. And we're human beings, and we're used to relating to human beings. Of course, we relate to animals as well, but we don't see many hungry ghosts or, you know, demigods or anything like that. We mostly see human beings. And so our habit of thinking in a narrow way, our habit of thinking in a more, with a more separatist mentality, it tends to increase rather than decrease if we practice just thinking of humans or just thinking of our culture or even just thinking of phenomena that we see. The Buddhist teaching describes that sentient beings are, at, are as limitless as space. And Kempo has also described, as well as His Holiness, that though we have a certain kind of karma that gives us a certain kind of perception that allows us to see one another 
and who else is in our sphere? Still in all, according to the Buddha's teachings, there are sentient beings as vast as space, and they are everywhere. The teachings describe that perhaps on other planets there are beings that we simply can't see. Perhaps in the space right next to us there are beings that we simply can't see. And because we can't see them, that does not give us the excuse to be unmindful of them. The Buddha teaches us that sentient beings are limitless. Their numbers are limitless. Their types are limitless. There are sentient beings that are formed and formless ones. We call them formless because the karma of our eyes does not perceive them. Perhaps they would call us the formless ones. Who knows? But what we can rest assured about, what we know for sure, is that the Buddha has taught us that there are uncountable sentient beings. Not six billion, uncountable sentient beings. The Buddha teaches us that there are all kinds of sentient beings, all kinds of sentient beings, both recognizable and unrecognizable to us, but each one of them has certain things in common, and that is that they are sentient beings. They have sense, they have perception, they have consciousness. And Lord Buddha himself taught that all these sentient beings, no matter what their karma is, or what their understanding is, or even what kind of beings they are, have one thing in, in common. They are all trying to be happy, and they don't know what constitutes the causes of happiness. So these sentient beings, like us before we find the path, are like bees in a jar, just kind of bumping into stuff, dancing around, trying to make sense, trying to put two and two together when we don't even understand what two and two actually are. And the thing about sentient beings is that if the causes of liberation and the causes of happiness are not well understood, it is not likely that we will create those causes unconsciously. At the very best, it's an even toss, 50-50. You'll either do something well or do something in a virtuous way or not doing, do it in a virtuous way. But actually, it mostly works out differently. It mostly works out that we follow the line of our habitual tendency. And we have lived, according to the Buddha, having lifetimes of various kinds, not only as humans, since time out of mind. That means beginningless time, inconceivable time. So we have all taken many forms, we have all walked many roads, and most of them have been not understanding how to create happiness. Therefore, we have gathered many habitual tendencies, and those habitual tendencies have taught us incorrectly. We continue to play out our habitual tendencies if we have the habit of grasping one kind of external event or the other, 
we likely continue that until we practice, practice, practice how to do something different. And even when we learn, according to the Buddha's teachings, what creates happiness, in the beginning we don't practice it very well. Well, we think about it and then we try a little effort and then maybe we try a little more and then we try some more and then we get old and we try harder. And so little by little, we begin to gain some practice and gain some wisdom. But even when we learn how to walk the path, even when we learn what are the virtuous causes of happiness, Still, it is very difficult, extremely difficult, as all of you must know by now, if you're practicing at all, to drop our habitual tendencies. Here we hear, according to the Buddha, that happiness is brought about by exhibiting and creating virtuous activities prayers, meditations, offering, generosity, practice, contemplation, meditation. There's a whole list of virtuous activities that we can do. And so once we learn that, as good little Buddhists, we say, oh, it's Sunday, I'm going to go to the temple, and you do your offering, maybe you do a little practice, maybe every day you do a little practice, but when you want to be happy, you go shopping. <laughs> <laughs> or go to the movies or go get a new love in your life that's what we want to do when we want to be happy even when the Buddha has said clearly that does not create happiness <laughs> the Buddha teaches us that these things even shopping arise from samsara and therefore can only result in samsara. I've, too, I've gone shopping a lot in my career and I have to tell you that even while I have done that, I have never, never in my life come home with a bag full of happiness and liberation. I'd love to. I'm looking for the bargain sale. You know, the Kmart special if I could find it. But so far, no luck. The Buddha teaches us that something else makes us happy, and we think, well, meritorious activity, well, that's work. <laughs> Making offerings, doing our practice, that's work. How, how's that going to make? I want to be happy today. It's the 4th of July. I'd like to see some fireworks. <laughs> My friends are nodding over there. <laughs> So I know I'm speaking to the right crowd. <laughs> but having traveled the path for a little while, we begin to learn that those fireworks are so ephemeral. They are over so quickly. And what is this delight that comes to our eyes? What is this delight that comes to our mouth when we taste something? What is this delight that comes to our hands when we touch some fine fabric or material? What is the delight that comes to our senses when we smell some, some, some perfume, if not ephemeral? It is so short, so limited, and yet because we are sentient beings, we practically sell our souls for them. And yet, 
This practice that the Buddha has taught us of accomplishing virtuous activity, when it's done consistently and well, to the degree that we can develop a virtuous habitual tendency, suddenly, miraculously, happiness increases. And it increases often in leaps and bounds. I, I can't count how many students I've had that were chronically depressed and miserable and just nasty temperament and, oh, all kinds of problems. Sweaty, stinky people. No. <laughs> I'm only saying that because we all did prostrations together. <laughs> that people that have had depression, that have had serious difficulties, that over time have learned to practice in a, in, a, in a virtuous way, have learned to follow the Buddha's teachings, even when they didn't understand how the benefit would be. But slowly, slowly over time have developed a new habit. And these same people are different. They are glowing. They are useful. They are giving. They have something to offer. And when they offer, you can trust their offering because it comes from that practice. When we understand this and begin to look at this with eyes of wisdom, we can see that this teaches us about impartiality because having traveled through all the shopping malls and through all the adventures of ordinary sentient existence and having gone around the wheel of death and rebirth so many times, and then finally coming upon the path and accomplishing some virtuous activity and feeling that new feeling and finally beginning to understand even one's own self-worth and value through understanding what you have to give to others. When that happiness begins, then we have enough experience to understand that we must be impartial. Because we can identify with the condition of all sentient beings. These sentient beings who are wandering in cyclic existence, looking for happiness and really not knowing how to make that happiness, how to create the seeds or how to plant the seeds that grow that particular tree, the tree of happiness and well-being. We understand what that's about. We have to open up our empathy and our sympathy and our abilities as bodhisattvas to perceive. We know what it's like to search and search and search and work so hard. I mean, look at people that work 12 hours a day supporting their families and they're diligent people and they're good people. They work so hard and they suffer every day of their working trying to make stability and happiness. We have done that. We know what that looks like. We know how disappointing it is to build and build and build and accumulate our whole lives. And then at the time of our death, there's not even one speck of any accumulation we have made materially that can bring us any joy or any relief from suffering or can provide any guidance for us into the next realm or the next life.
imagine that? What suffering? To be able to accumulate for, say, 75 years and at the end wonder what it was all about. Sure, you can leave it to your kids, but guess what? They're old too and about to die. And the beat goes on. And this is just humanity. The Buddha has taught us that we are in the best possible position. Because in our position, we can hear these words. In our position, we have the leisure to practice. We have the faculties to practice. We have all the necessary components, plus we have met with the path. So we are in the best situation. And yet even we know what it's like to waste our lives. And even we know what it's like to begin to create some habitual tendency that is positive and meritorious and to see the difference, to feel the difference internally. This should bring us a tremendous supply of empathy for all sentient beings. According to the Buddhist teachings, these other sentient beings that once again are uncountable, limitless as the sky, even though they may not be visible to us now, that these sentient beings are in no position to follow the path. Now I want you to think about that. Try to imagine if you were in a life such as the life of perhaps a hungry ghost in the hungry ghost realm or one of the hell realm beings or even an animal. I think about my puppies. To imagine that you are in a life like that and there's no way out. My puppies are wonderful, but they can't practice. They don't know who they're with. They don't know when they're in a temple. They don't know when His Holiness blesses them. They know nothing. And yet, they want to be happy. I've seen them play with each other. They jump around and frisk around, and they want to be happy all day. That's all they want. <laughs> they just want to play all day. And I think about the other realms and the other beings in those realms. We are taught that there are realms where there is so much condensed suffering that in those realms the mind cannot turn to Dharma, cannot conceive of Dharma, cannot look for another way out. It's as though, the way I understand it is like this, if someone were Buddha forbid, taking a knife and stabbing it into your arm. I know that's a grotesque image, but taking a knife and stabbing it into your arm. At that moment, you are so involved in that event, so involved in that pain, that literally your consciousness is about that big. It has no depth. It has no spaciousness at all. In this event, there is no opportunity to say, let me create causes for the end of the suffering, or let me think to antidote whatever causes I have created that have made this pain. You can't think that. There's no space for it. 
the majority of sentient beings, that is to say, sentient beings like the number of grains of sand on the earth, are in that position. You are not in that position because you have worked very hard. Unfortunately, you can't remember working very hard. So in this lifetime, you cheat yourself. And you forget. And you act as though you don't know anything. And you continue to create causes for unhappiness and suffering. But you're here. And that much we know. And we can see that with our eyes. And that tells us what the Buddha has taught, that to be here, you have to have worked very hard. How fortunate for us, but how unfortunate for those who are not yet here. How unfortunate for those who simply continue to wander in cyclic existence with no hope of creating causes for happiness. This impartiality is an attribute that we as blossoming bodhisattvas must cultivate. And here's why. It's easy for us to have bodhisattva intentions, to have good wishes, to have loving kindness toward the people we know particularly toward our families. That's really easy. We have children, we have parents, we have families. We know them. But the interesting thing about our families is that the part of us they relate to is the ego. And the part of them we relate to is the ego. Our families are truly extensions of our own ego. They are reflections of how our egos have developed. They have catalyzed our growth as separate identities, as well as we catalyzing theirs. The relationship is one based on ego. If we were to take away that element, then our relationship with all sentient beings would be absolutely equal. Because all sentient beings have within them the Buddha nature, perfect and complete, ready to be actualized and ripened in this very life. The potential is there. Equally in all beings, they are all Buddha. The unseen ones, the seen ones, the suffering ones and the happy ones, the cockroaches and the rats and all the stinky slimies. They are all Buddha. All have that same potential. So in that view, our relationship with all sentient beings is perfectly equal. We are exactly the same. No one is high. No one is low. We are exactly the same. It is this deluded mind, this mind of duality, that sees high and low. It is this mind of duality that says, I know you better than I know you. 
It's this mind of duality that perceives relationship as a thing that happens between this and that. You see? The more that we count our peers, our families, the ones that we recognize, the ones that are easily in our consciousness, as being more important, the more that we think of them as more important and more deserving of our practice, the more that we hope for certain beings more than other beings, to that degree, we actually increase the mind of duality. Now, that's difficult to think about because we think, wow, you know, I've learned this from my parents and their parents before them, and, well, it's, it's, the, it's the modern thing. It's the thing to do. One should think of, even you think about marriage vows. You hold your spouse above all others, and then when you have your child, you know, that's the child you're responsible for feeding, not the others. And, and this is the kind of idea that we have. These are the values that we are brought up with. But the Buddha says that these values are based on the mind of duality and misconception. As Bodhisattva, we are mother and father to them all. Everyone. I think it's interesting, sometimes the Anis, uh, they will come up to me and they'll say, there is one regret. I didn't have children. And I say to you, no. When you took ordination, you got all the children. They are all your children. It is necessary for us at this time to be able to identify with all sentient beings, with all forms of life, to take that simple and unhappiness-producing myopic vision that we have as ordinary sentient beings and fling that door open. To include all sentient beings of all kinds. Now that doesn't mean that when you become a bodhisattva you should become a rotten mother to your own children or father or that you should suddenly dance off into the distance in some theoretical hoo-ha and leave everything undone at home. Nope. You get to do it all. But in your practice you must hold all sentient beings even those life forms that may seem grotesque to us because we have no understanding of them as your beloved children. And you have to feel as uniquely responsible for each and every one of them as a mother or father does for their child. You know, when a mother has a child and a, or a father has a child, they think, this child is my responsibility. Well, I don't know, fathers are not quite as good at it as mothers are these days. But, uh, well, some fathers. But we have 
that parently obligation to think that this child, if that child is going to get to be their full height, it's because I fed them. You know, if that child is going to get educated, it's because I educated them or sent them to school. You are uniquely responsible for that child. But you have to think the same way in your practice about all sentient beings. Perhaps it isn't reasonable that you can educate and feed all sentient beings. Perhaps most sentient beings we can't even see with our eyes. But in our practice, our intention from the ground floor up has to broaden and deepen and widen to where gradually over time our lives will change and we will develop the necessary characteristics in order to be able to nurture all sentient beings. Perhaps we don't have those characteristics just yet, but we start with intention, and from intention, development proceeds. So, in order to develop impartiality, we have to think like this. And it's actually quite different from most other religions on the earth that I know. Most, most other religions on the earth are, in fact, egocentric. You think about the early church. The early church thought that you know, the earth was in the middle and the sun ran around it, and, and it was quite different. The thinking was quite different. And in fact, when uh, science first discovered that, in fact, the sun was in the middle and we were going around the sun, the earth was going around the sun, that person was uh, uh, put away from the church. The scientists were put away from the church and discarded and reprimanded and, it, and even thrown in jail. And even nowadays, um, what I heard, this, you'll love this, I think it was a Baptist minister. Yes, it was, it was a Baptist minister. And he was talking about this um, UFO phenomena. He was saying how weird it is how everybody thinks that, you know, UFOs are coming from somewhere else. And he says, well, it can't be so because it's not in the Bible. So in his mind, no matter how many galaxies there are out there, and Hubble has told us there are many, no matter how many galaxies there are out there, no matter how many planets on all, around all those suns, those, those things you see in the sky, they're all suns. No matter how many planets there are out there, because he didn't read it, the assumption is that there can't be anything else out, not even a bacteria, nothing. And that's, that's that. So we are taught and we have received this idea that we must be very egocentric, that we have to keep that throne and keep our egos on that throne. The Buddhist teaching is very different. The Buddha says that there are sentient beings as limitless as space. And the Buddha talks about 3,000 myriads of universes. Well, that's one of those phrases that when you ask the Kempos or ask the Lamas to translate it, they go, well, uh, uh, 3,000 myriads, uh, 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 lots. <laughs> Tough one to translate. That means literally uncountable, uncountable, uncountable worlds. 
uncountable realms. Yes, the Buddha teaches of the six main realms, but there are uncountable sub-realms within each. The Buddha teaches us that this universe is teeming with life, with life, and that there are other universes besides dimensions on dimensions on dimensions on dimensions. Not only are we not the main dish, but we are such an infinitesimally small part of it when all we're representing is our egos. Yet, if we can be mindful and abide in our meditation in a wisdom, more wisdom-attuned state of mind, then we can see that as Buddha, we are everything. As Buddha, there is no place where I end and you begin. You are Buddha. There is no place where you end and I begin. But the ego that we are taught is in the center of the universe. That should not be king. It should not be king of our lives. When we develop impartiality, it is with that knowledge. First of all, even on an ordinary human level, how can you have racial or religious or cultural prejudice when the Buddha clearly states that all sentient beings are equal? And how can you say black people are different or Asian people are different or uh, um, Hispanic people are different or old people are different or young people? How can you say that? when according to the Buddhist teachings, all sentient beings are equal. How can we step on bugs and crush worms under our feet when the Buddha has clearly said all sentient beings are equal? So what we are asked to do is develop a new habit to remove from the lotus throne in our hearts our own sweet little faces, our own little egos, and instead be reminded of the truth of our nature, which is as vast as the sky, as vast as space, beginningless and yet perfectly complete. And in that nature, we must recognize all sentient beings with impartiality. We are taught as Buddhists to accomplish certain kinds of practices, and this is a great way to start. When we practice taking the Bodhisattva vow, we should visualize with us our parents and our family and our friends and all the people that we know. But then we should also visualize those people who have been like enemies to us. And that practice can be taken very deeply. Because you wouldn't only think about human enemies. That's easy. Anyone can do that. You have some people that don't like you, I'm sure. <laughs> so human enemies, that's easy. 
But what about that mosquito that bit you last night? What about that flea that jumped on your ankle and bit it? Well, what about the bacteria that caused that toothache? What about the ants that are in your house? Like that. Even though we don't have the habit of thinking that way, the Buddha, again, has clearly taught us all sentient beings are equal. And we are taught to hold each and every being with absolute reverence. With reverence, thinking that we are the servants of these beings. So when we think of our enemies, we have to think about these mosquitoes and these ants and these fleas and these bugs. And we have to think about those with whom we have some opposing karma, but that we have no knowledge of it, perhaps beings that we have had some negative karma with in some past life. But in this life, we have no knowledge of them. Or perhaps unseen beings, unseen beings that we cannot see with our eyes or see with our senses, but they are quite real and quite intertwined with us in some cause and effect kind of relationship that we call karma. Indeed, in the Buddha's teaching, there is absolutely no room for prejudice or hatred or discrimination of that kind. And that being the case, we have to develop this impartiality. So when we think about the suffering of sentient beings, we cannot only think about our own suffering. We cannot only think about familiar suffering. Again, if that's all the degree you take your practice to, it's 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 good start, but it's not enough. When I say it's a good start, I mean like this. We can use examples that we understand well as ways to practice. For instance, if I look at someone that has handicap or is very dreadfully sick, you know, a human that's very dreadfully sick, I can see that. I can understand that. It makes sense to me. And so I can empathize with their suffering. And so in that way, you can use that instance as a focus. It is a focal point. You can use the suffering of another being that you can easily identify as a way to give rise to that compassion. But you must never, never, never stop there. You must go beyond that and use that being as an example of the kind of suffering that is present but you must always be fully aware of the beings behind that being that are in much worse condition and have much worse suffering. Even when we think about the noble objective that we have set up for ourselves of peace on earth, we've agreed, uh, the main Sangha here has agreed to accumulate five million seven-line prayer and one million of the 21 homages to Tara for world peace. But that's merely a focus. It's merely a focus. We can relate to how disastrous it would be if there were a world war. 
We've read about this before. We can relate. We can imagine what that's like. It is much more difficult to imagine wars on worlds unheard of. Or even in the realm of what they call the jealous gods, the constant warfare that goes on there, and the constant resultant suffering. These realms that we have no awareness of, there is war everywhere. So we must use this planetary focus as a gate, a gateway, if you will. Sort of like in your awareness you think, yes, I am accumulating this so that I can take care of my planet. You know, take care of this planet that I live on as I take care of my child. Because I'm responsible. I'm here. I am here, aren't I? Yeah. I'm responsible. I'm here, just like I am that child's mother. But it leads us to open up new doors internally in our practice. Because we should think that if we can understand the suffering of one person, then we should broaden ourselves and by implication, by, what is the word? By intuiting, by continuing, by perceiving more deeply, we can see beyond that into suffering in others. Likewise, if we see that our world is a world of confusion and suffering and that how many sentient beings suffer horribly on this world and how many sentient beings are dying because they've been murdered on this world every day and we think of those factors, what it does is it gives us a handy dandy little thing that we can focus on, a picture, an image, an understanding that we can use as our focus. So this world becomes not only our responsibility, but also a meditational tool, you see, for us to take on the responsibility of prayer for the world. The implication is that we are taking on the responsibility of prayer for all worlds. We are not separating one realm or some people out of the whole of sentient beings and say, okay, I got this job. We are praying for the end of war. We are praying for the end of hatred, ignorance, and greed that cause war. And these are elements that are persistent in all sent all beings in all realms all sentient beings in all realms so be careful 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 as buddhist practitioners as budding bodhisattvas not to fall into the habit of identifying so much with your own culture and group that they are somehow more important to you than others because if that happens you are actually reinforcing your ego identity. Instead, each and every person that you love and treasure, that you take care of, that you work for in your prayer, that you dedicate your practice to, should be like a focal point. So when we, for instance, say our five million seven-line prayers and our one million, 21 homages, 
at the end of it, of course, we're going to say, and I dedicate that to the to world peace and to the end of all war on the earth. But in our minds, we have to go, and of course, to the liberation and salvation of all sentient beings. Perceiving that if it's like that here, how much worse must it be in realms where the Buddha cannot be known? Now, of course, we understand that the Buddha nature is everywhere and that all sentient beings are equal. So how is it that some beings find the path and others have not yet? How is it some beings are able to practice and other beings are not? Because while we have the Buddha seed, and that is our innate nature, this is how it is. That is our nature, naked. Yet, what brings us to the path are connecting circumstances, cause and effect relationships that build one on the other. The thing that provides our opportunity are, are strings or are, are, are like garlands or necklaces of connecting circumstances that began in beginningless time and have continued and now our fortunate connecting circumstances have connected us to one another. And the Dharma is taught and we are connected to His Holiness, connected to this incredible pure lineage that has been a jewel on the face of this earth for such a long time now. How amazing. How amazing. But it's not because your Buddha seed is better than somebody else's Buddha seed. It's because of connecting circumstances. So, this is why, as bodhisattvas, we have to consider all sentient beings that they are equal in their nature and have the same true face as we do, as you do. Yet at the same time, they lack something so almost meaningless, almost lightweight or stupid compared to the impact of knowing that they are Buddha. They are Buddha, but they have no connecting circumstances. They simply haven't been built yet. The only difference, the only difference between oneself and a cockroach. I hope and pray that that will give rise to such compassion. Because if they are Buddha like you, then they are not so different from you. You know how you long for liberation. You know how you long for happiness. And how you suffer when that happiness is unavailable. And when some karma ripens that is really, really difficult. So you of all beings, should be able, if you practice deeply, 
to learn to understand the plight of sentient beings who are themselves Buddha, the very Lord that we pray to, the very naked face that is our nature, the very primordial ground of being from which we all spring. They are Buddha, but they are not happy. And they are not here. So our compassion must grow and it must become boundless, unlimited like space, the space that they exist in. And we must think for ourselves as bodhisattvas, of what worth is my personal happiness? Of what worth is my personal comfort and satisfaction? And how can I ever be happy? How can I ever really be happy when all I have to do is look out the window and see others exactly like me are suffering horribly? So for that reason, we teach ourselves and we must teach ourselves to focus deeply in our prayer. Don't just get through your practice. Offer it. Every time you speak the Buddha's teachings by reciting prayers, every time you meditate in the way that the Buddha has taught, you change the world. You change samsara. Sure, it's a drop in the ocean. But we're a lot of drops and we're getting bigger. <coughs> and our effort should be so inspired that we think, I will not stop until all the oceans of all the worlds are filled with the milk of Dharma. So whoever you focus on, whoever you see, let that person be for you a guru. When you pray for some suffering sentient being, when you see some suffering that just seems horrible to you, or when you have a loved one, a child, a parent, who goes through old age sickness and death just like all of us. When you see that and it gives rise to proper compassion in you, let that person be your guru. Let that person teach you how to look beyond, look through that small door into the suffering of all sentient beings and become the bodhisattva that you are meant to be. So that is a small teaching on impartiality. I hope it helped to reinforce what His Holiness has mentioned time and time again. This podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org.